It's 2011 and the Arab Spring is raging. A lesbian activist in Syria starts a blog. She names it Gay Girl in Damascus. Am I crazy? Maybe. As her profile grows, so does the danger. The object of the email was, please read this while sitting down. It's like a genie came out of the bottle and you can't put it back. Gay Girl Gone. Available now. This is a CBC Podcast. Before we get started, I want to make a note about language. I'm going to be making reference to a book in this episode, and the English title of the book contains an ugly, hateful word. Maybe the ugliest word in the English language. I'm not going to use the word because nobody needs to hear it. I'll just say N-word. But you need to know about the book because it's pretty essential if you want to understand the FLQ, the Quebec Liberation Front. The title of the book, translated to English, is The White N-Words of America. The subtitle calls it A Precocious Autobiography of a Quebec Terrorist. And as you might have guessed from that title, the author aligns the experience of French Canadians to the struggles of black Americans. The author was Pierre Vallier. A man who says he's always been judged for his ideas and the way he denounced injustice. Vallier was a self-proclaimed revolutionary, someone who questioned the system and raised awareness against perceived injustices. The book itself is a mix of essays and personal history. Above all, it's an expression of alienation and anger. Anger rooted not just in politics, but in bitter memories of family life in working-class Montreal. Vallier challenged Quebecers to harness their anger and to take up arms in the name of independence. In order to attain this objective, he says, and here I quote, we must first organize together a violence, a force, capable of liberating us all from the multiple forms of slavery, domination, and alienation that subjugate us collectively and individually from the time we are in the cradle. The tone of the book grew from Valliere's experience, but it must have been shaped by the immediate conditions under which it was produced as well. You see, Valliere wrote the book while in a New York jail. He churned it out in longhand on scraps of paper in his cell. He smuggled the manuscript out with an unsuspecting prison guard who thought he was ferrying notes to Valliere's lawyer. The book caught the eye of a New York Times reviewer who wrote that it would, quote, take its place alongside the writing of Malcolm X, Eldridge Cleaver, Franz Fanon, Che Guevara, and Regis Debray. For it is an eloquent revolutionary document that clutches one's throat like a drowning hand. But Valliere would be made to answer for that revolutionary message. Passages from the book, a book published at least two years after the crimes in question, were produced as evidence of Valliere's guilt at trial for manslaughter in connection with two bombings. The prosecution built its case around his ideas. It appeared they were just as afraid of words as they were of weapons. And maybe for good reason. The book and the trial and conviction of Pierre Valliere only inflamed separatist sentiment. It made Valliere the philosophical father of the movement. Suddenly a man that police viewed as a killer and a villain had the aura of a folk hero, a prisoner of conscience. Prosecutors thought they'd cut the head from the snake. 
they were wrong. A bomb exploded today in a federal government building in downtown Montreal. Would you say that this is a communist-backed subversive group, or would you say it's French separatist terrorists? The damaging of a section of track, apparently with dynamite, has been blamed on the so-called suicide commandos. But they intend to murder in cold blood two innocent men unless their demands are met. Your letters have moved me to hope that we will soon be together again. I do hope the FLQ will continue to allow you to write to me. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall, How to Start a Revolution. Chapter 3, The Mastermind. Pierre Valliere had been getting his words out into the world for years before he published his book. He'd been a journalist for La Presse, the biggest French-language daily in Montreal and he'd written about Quebec in progressive journals. But he was also spreading his ideas on the down-low. He wrote under a nom de guerre in the newsletters of the FLQ. They were called La Cognée and L'Avant-Garde. The newsletters were full of inflammatory language and calls to sabotage and bombing, interventions and labor struggles. And that might have seemed like empty talk, except for what happened on July 14, 1966. That morning, Jean Corbeau woke up in the comfort of his upper-middle-class family home. His mother was French-Canadian, but his father was an Italian immigrant, a very successful notary public. It was summer vacation. Jean was 10 days away from his 17th birthday. He washed and dressed, and then, with his brother, he sat down to a meal prepared by the cleaning lady. He left the house about 1 p.m. There are gaps in the story from there, but he would eventually meet up with Serge de Mers in front of the Montreal Forum, a temple of hockey and home of the legendary Canadien. De Mers was 21, a student and also a bomb maker for the FLQ. He pulled up in a Volkswagen van. The pair went over some instructions, and then they drove the few blocks to Dominion Textiles. It was a sprawling factory on the north shore of the Lachine Canal. Today, it's a relic of the glory days of Canadian manufacturing. In the summer of 1966, the company was in the midst of a labor dispute, and that made it a target of the FLQ. So once they got to the plant, Demers handed Corbeau a bomb in an Air Canada carry-on bag. They shook hands. The plan was to meet later at a restaurant. Corbeau made his way towards a parked car in the alleyway, right next to the factory. So it's like... Classic red brick that almost everything was made out of in Montreal of that era. You can see the marker on that building, 1899. This was Jean Corbeau's final destination that day. But it's wild, eh, to get a sense of how huge this business would have been. That night, a security guard heard what he called a stunning explosion. He rushed to the scene to find several people gathered near a badly damaged car. There was smoke coming from the vehicle. Oh, yeah, there's the corner. Yeah, that's it. Oh, yeah, well, we got the window. There's that window right there. Oh, and there's the bottom. There's that part right there. Yeah. And they've added the stairwell. So we're actually parked where his body was lying. Like, literally right where his body was. My producer Jessica and I have been driving around for the last 10 minutes trying to figure out where the explosion happened based on photographs of the scene that night. 
Yeah, so in the photograph, the car is basically right there. Standing here now, it's easy to picture. Corbeau kneels between the car and the exterior wall of a factory. His job is simple enough. Arm the bomb, set it down, and walk away. But it explodes before he gets the chance. In a photograph from the scene, his badly mangled body is lying about 20 feet in front of the car. His clothes are gone, totally gone. The blast must have just blown them right off him. In the course of researching this podcast, my producers and I got a chance to spend hours at the Quebec National Archives in Montreal. We poured over documents, including the coroner's inquest into the death of Jean Corbeau. I flipped to the back of the case folder, and here are more photos from the scene. There's a close-up of Corbeau, his body dismembered, but his face intact, thick head of dark hair, his eyes open. He's just a kid. And then something else slips out of the folder, a business card. On the back, in tidy blue ink handwriting, there's a note about picking up a photograph of Jean Corbeau from his family. On the front of the card, it reads, Julien Jaguer, Sergeant Detective, Montreal Police. Julien Jaguer is enjoying the quiet life in Terrebonne, an hour northeast of Montreal. It's a retirement complex. There's a bustling recreation space off the lobby, and it's packed with friendly faces. People playing card games, crowded around the pool table, chatting in the hair salon. It's a world away from the gritty, crime-fighting life that he led for decades as a detective with the Montreal police. It's December 2019, and Jaguer still seems every inch the gruff homicide cop. I wouldn't want to be on the wrong end of his interrogation, even now, let alone back in the summer of 1966. The death of Jean Corbeau capped a deadly couple of months for the FLQ. On May 6th, Thérèse Marin had been killed in the bombing at the La Grenade shoe factory. I guess it was around 1 o'clock. And my uh, lieutenant told me, says, hey, you started a job there, the bomb exploded. So uh, I drove with my own car on the scene. Jaguer says he knew right away that it was the FLQ. Yeah, it couldn't be nobody else. But he didn't know much beyond that. Then his colleagues at the RCMP shared a name. Earlier that spring, there'd been a robbery at a cinema. Movie theaters were low-hanging fruit for stick-ups back then. The case had gone unsolved for months, but on August 27th, police picked up three people in connection with the crime. One of them was a 19-year-old lab technician, Raoul Mathieu. So, two days later, the lieutenant in charge of the FLQ squad came to me and said, Hey, guy, there's a guy in Bordeaux that... The Bordeaux he's talking about is not French wine country. It's Bordeaux prison, a provincial jail on the north side of Montreal. Jaguer got there by late afternoon. They settled in for a long night of interrogation. And pretty soon the information began to flow. 
So at one time he says, okay, I will tell you everything. At first, Real Mathieu denied involvement in the shoe factory bombing. Jaguer was getting pissed off. He says, listen, it's not me at Logan and everybody says, what the hell? He says, you're going to tell me everything. He says, yes, it was not me, but okay, but what else? He says, it was a gate on the Rosie. Remember Therese LeBay from episode one? She was right there when that bomb exploded at the La Grenade shoe factory, and she described the skinny little boy who delivered the bomb. That boy was Gaetan de Rosier, 17 years old and still in high school. As the night of interrogation went on, Riel Mathieu offered more names and a clearer picture of the events leading up to the La Grenade bombing. What was the truth, according to Riel Mathieu? Well, the truth was that it was decided to put a bomb at La Grenade shoes by the consul. I say, what consul? He told Giguer that La Grenade was chosen as a target by a council. That council was essentially the leading members of the FLQ cell led by Pierre Vallier and Charles Gagnon. I would say the grandfathers were uh, Vallier and Gagnon. <laughs> Julien Giguer exaggerates a little bit, but Vallier and Gagnon were about a decade older than most of the cell. Réal Mathieu, on the other hand, this is him you're hearing now, he was the youngest member of Vallière's group, and he says he was audacious. He wound up with the job of stealing dynamite, weapons, and almost as importantly, printing equipment. He was also put in charge of recruitment. He's the one who signed up Gaetan de Rosier and 16-year-old Jean Corbeau, who he met through a girlfriend. The same Jean Corbeau who wound up blown to pieces planting a bomb at Dominion Textiles. He says he had no qualms about recruiting other teenagers. Besides, he says, a 17-year-old is mature enough to know what he's doing when he's sent to deliver a bomb. We did reach out to Réal Mathieu for his side of the story, but he declined to speak with us. In a Facebook message to my producer, Francis, he called the CBC a propaganda tool for the Canadian government. So while some of the former FLQ members have mellowed a bit over the years, Mathieu has stuck to his ideological guns. The guy with the briefcase is this man, Riel Mathieu, 53 years old. He was arrested last night along with his son. In 2001, he was sentenced to six months in jail for a firebomb attack on three cafes in Montreal. It's part of a pattern for him. In the 60s, he was involved in the Front de Libération du Québec, a nationalist movement that used violence to promote its cause. The cafés were outlets of the second cup chain. He was angry that the company's signs have the name in English only. Oh, ben salut, mon camarade. These clips you're hearing of Mathieu are from a 2014 YouTube interview with a communist activist named Pierre Klepok. In the same conversation, Mathieu managed to at least partly answer a nagging question of mine. How do you end up in a clandestine organization in the first place? It's not like they can put an ad in the paper. Wanted, separatists with bomb-making experience. Oh, oui, 
Starting when he was 17, Mathieu went looking to join up with organizations fighting for independence. The secretary of one of these organizations was a guy named Pierre Vallier. When someone new signed up, Mathieu says Vallier would hand them a questionnaire. The last question on the forum was a doozy. Are you for or against the use of violence in a political context? Mathieu says that if you answered in favor of violence, well, Pierre Vallier would tuck your questionnaire into a secret folder. Well, I bet you can guess how Mathieu answered. Soon enough, he was part of an FLQ cell, led by Pierre Vallier and Charles Gagnon. But while he might talk tough now, back in 1966, Mathieu cracked under the interrogation of Julien Jaguerre. That opened the floodgates. By revealing those noms de guerre, he had unmasked some of the ideological leaders of the FLQ. Within weeks, police had arrested 15 people and seized guns and explosives by the crateful. This was followed by coroner's inquests and preliminary hearings and, eventually, nine people charged with 49 offenses, everything from petty theft to murder. As 1966 drew to a close, there was a feeling that police had broken the back of the FLQ. Over the next few months, virtually all of the accused would stand up and admit to their part with guilty pleas. There were two notable exceptions. A couple of the biggest fish, well, they got away. Charles Gagnon and Pierre Vallier had been in the States drumming up support for their cause when police began rounding up members of the FLQ. They saw the writing on the wall, and they stayed put. Now remember, the FLQ was a diffuse operation. The activities of the group, robberies, stick-ups, and bombs, it all came in waves. It was small cells of radicals working with only modest coordination. There was no grand hierarchy directing individual members. But then along came Pierre Vallier and Charles Gagnon, the closest thing the group had ever had to conventional leaders. With a combination of intellect and working-class pedigree, they'd come to symbolize the ambitions of the FLQ. Pierre Vallier grew up on Montreal's south shore in what was then an informal settlement. A slum, as he puts it. His father worked in the Angus Shops, the Canadian Pacific Railway's massive works and maintenance facility. A strike at the shop would shape Vallier's views of what working-class francophones experienced. As a young man, Vallier spent a few years in a Franciscan seminary. He seemed destined for the priesthood. Instead, he eventually left with some education and some cold feelings for the Catholic Church. He kicked around France for a bit, another bitter, penniless stretch for Vallier. He returned to Montreal and found work as a reporter at La Presse, the city's major French-language daily, who was covering international affairs. And soon he found himself in some lofty intellectual circles. He was briefly involved with Cité Libre, a journal of progressive political ideas. It was co-founded by Pierre Trudeau. Yes, that Pierre Trudeau, the father of our current prime minister. It's also where he met Charles Gagnon. But Vallier locked horns with the others there, including Trudeau. 
The two were on opposite sides when it came to the question of Quebec independence, and certainly about the means to achieve it. Valier would later write that his time at Cité Libre led naturally to picket lines, protests against the war in Vietnam, and the FLQ. In 1964, Valier and Gagnon came together to found their own journal called Révolution Québécoise. It combined revolutionary leftist ideology and Quebec independence, the same basic intellectual foundation as the FLQ. The journal didn't last long, and when his bosses suspected he was caught up in the FLQ, Valier lost his job at La Presse. Soon, Gagnon and Valier actually did drift into the FLQ. They began writing for the FLQ newsletter, La Cognée. Valier was talking about a revolution. He wrote, Here, as in Algeria and Cuba, the development of the revolution towards socialism will not be the result of a precise doctrinal choice made by the people and the combatants, but the result of the Quebec people's march towards independence. By the fall of 1966, right around the time that Julien Jaguer was rounding up suspects in the La Grenade bombing, Valier and Gagnon were far from Montreal, far from Canada. The fact is, for three weeks, almost no one knew where they were. But at the end of September, they turned up in New York City at the United Nations headquarters, to be exact, where they introduced themselves and their cause to the international press. Then they took their message to the streets. Archival footage of Valier and Gagnon shows the two men walking the sidewalk outside the UN. They're clean-cut, dressed in suits. Each is carrying a sign that reads simply, Hunger Strike, Front de Libération du Québec. One in French, one in English. There's no one else around. It looks like a lonely crusade. Monsieur Valier, vous voilà rendu à New York. It's here that a reporter from Radio Canada caught up with them. Ce que nous comptons faire, c'est attirer l'attention des pays du monde entier sur la lutte de libération qui se livre au Québec. What we intend to do, says Pierre Valier, is draw the attention of the whole world to the fight for liberation in Quebec. The authorities refuse to recognize us as the revolutionaries we are. They treat us as common criminals. So we're protesting against that, too. The reporter then turns to Charles Gagnon and asks him if he considers himself to be a revolutionary as well. Yes, he says. And we'll stay here at the United Nations until the end, he adds. But we have the impression we could be arrested soon enough. His hunch was correct. Police in Canada wanted them back home to face charges in the La Grenade bombing. New York police arrested the pair, but there was some messy cross-border stuff to deal with. Valier and Gagnon would spend three months at the charmingly named Manhattan House of Detention for Men, known as the Tombs, before finally being sent home. Julien Jaguer was at the airport to welcome them when the plane landed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4... This is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. 
Now bear with me because we're going to take a bit of a detour here. It'll become clear why in just a couple of minutes. But you have to know that 1967 was a big year for Canada. The country was marking its centennial anniversary, 100 years since Confederation, and getting ready for a party to celebrate the occasion. To this day, just about anywhere you travel in Canada, you'll find centennial parks and theaters and swimming pools, lavish birthday presents that communities gave to themselves. This incredible song you're listening to was also commissioned for the occasion. Composer Bobby Gimby wrote two versions, one in French and one in English. But the real focus of the celebration was Montreal. The city was hosting the World's Fair, Expo 67. And almost from the get-go, Expo was a smashing success. Millions of people from all over the world visited the city. And thanks to the wave of arrests and convictions connected to the La Grenade bombing, the FLQ would have a very quiet year. No bombings at all during a months-long event that might otherwise have been an obvious symbolic target for separatist action. So Expo was this chance for Canada to show off, and leaders from around the world arrived to fet the young nation. During the Expo, we had the visits of heads of states by the dozens. <laughs> there would be about one, one a week type of thing during months. Marc Lalonde was policy advisor to Prime Minister Lester B. Pearson in 1967. He says that as part of the Expo diplomatic protocol, every leader whose country would exhibit at the World Fair got an invite. And the rules were pretty simple. The heads of state would fly to Ottawa, be received by the governor general and meet the prime minister, and then they would come to Montreal and uh, do whatever they wished to do. This was Canada's party, after all, and most of those visiting dignitaries were happy to comply. Most, but not all. We got indication that... Uh, the general uh, would not fly in. He would arrive uh, aboard uh, one of the French uh, Navy uh, cruiser. That general was French President Charles de Gaulle, and he was headed for Quebec City, not Ottawa. Although we thought this was not uh, appropriate uh, protocol, we decided that uh, we would buy peace and uh, uh, not make it a, a big quarrel. De Gaulle arrived in Quebec City to military fanfare. Dressed in his green military uniform, the 76-year-old general struck an imposing figure as he stood before the welcoming party and made a vibrant speech. Vive le Canada! Vive les Canadiens français! Vive le Québec! Vive la Nouvelle France! Vive la France! The next day, de Gaulle climbs into a Lincoln Continental limo to make the 270-kilometer trip to Montreal. He's visiting picturesque towns all along the St. Lawrence River, and he's greeting the crowds and speaking at every stop. And the word starts to catch on. The crowds are getting bigger. The chanting is getting louder. So following this motorcade, there's a young activist named Robert Camo. He's packed into his small car with a bunch of his friends. He claims eight or nine of them, which... Seems outrageous, but maybe it was a clown car or something. Anyway, they're supporters of the fledgling separatist party, the RIN, and they're trying to get the attention of the general. Et à chaque endroit où il arrêtait, 
on se rapprochait du général, puis on avait appris la Marseillaise. Puis on s'est dit, on va, on va faire le slogan du Aérien, on va... To do that, they'd learn the words to the French national anthem, and they'd sing along at each stop. Como says de Gaulle would turn to see who was singing. That's when they'd shout, Vive le Québec libre, long live free Québec. They'd make sure the general heard them, he says. So at 7.30 p.m. that day, de Gaulle finally reaches Montreal. He's greeted at City Hall by the mayor, Jean Drapeau. And by this time, thousands of people have gathered to hear him speak. And of course, Robert Camo and his eight or nine friends are among them. De Gaulle steps out onto a balcony. It's draped with red, white, and blue bunting for the French flag. And then someone hands him a microphone, and de Gaulle starts to speak. He begins by comparing the atmosphere in Montreal to that of the French liberation in 1944. And then he says this. Vive le Québec! Vive le Québec libre! Those four little words would make headline news. In Montreal, the French-language daily Le Devoir devoted seven front-page articles to parsing the speech and its meaning. The English press was a little more dismissive. One magazine even suggested that de Gaulle was senile. But if you ask any Quebecer where they were on that day, and you can be sure they remember. Quand j'ai entendu Vive Montréal, vive le Québec, vive le Québec libre. Et là, c'était fantastique parce que... Robert Como says it was a fantastic moment. It gave the separatist movement legitimacy. Marc Lalonde was at his summer cottage just outside of Montreal when de Gaulle stepped onto that balcony. I remember going to swim in the lake before dinner and getting into the cottage as the television was on and uh, hearing de Gaulle's speech and... Uh, I must say, uh, I almost dropped my swimming suit. Uh, I still remember being uh, completely wet and looking at this and saying, that guy is crazy. President de Gaulle never did make it to Ottawa. He flew back to France aboard his presidential DC-8 in the middle of a storm. All told, de Gaulle was in Canada for just 48 hours. And even Marc Lalonde, a staunch Federalist, said the visit had a lasting impact. There's no doubt that de Gaulle's declaration gave an appearance of international legitimacy to the claim for independence. It was uh, obvious, uh, very powerful interference. Soon enough, though, the de Gaulle visit faded from the news. Canada was in the midst of a party, after all. But Pierre Valliere was not feeling so festive. He spent most of the centennial year in a Montreal jail cell awaiting trial. And maybe it's just bitterness after the fact, but Valliere was long convinced that he was held all that time so he couldn't be a party pooper. And when his book was finally published, it happened to include this passage. The Canadian Confederation is at the point of death, at the very moment when it is beginning to celebrate its centennial in an effort to believe it will survive. Like a half-unconscious victim of cancer who refuses to make his will and persists in denying the death that is devouring him. But for the time being, Canada was very much alive and well and looking to serve justice to Pierre Valliere. 
Eventually, the case against Charles Gagnon would fall apart and he would be acquitted. Valliere would face the court alone. Almost from the moment it began, the trial of Pierre Valliere was a circus. Supporters feared it would be postponed again, and they showed up in droves outside the courtroom. There was a false bomb threat. The daily Montreal Matin noted the large number of bearded students in attendance. Valliere defended himself, which might not have been the best legal tactic, but it made for quite a political spectacle. He'd been charged with murder and the death of Therese Morin. In earlier proceedings, bombmaker Serge Demers testified that Valliere had personally planned the shoe factory bombing that killed her. It seemed like a slam dunk for the prosecution. But Demers, the main witness, recanted, claiming that police had fabricated important parts of the story. Without the evidence linking Valliere directly to the death, the prosecution had to pivot. The charges were reduced to manslaughter and the case was built around the writings of Valliere. His work for La Cognée and L'Avant-Garde was presented as proof that he had encouraged and directed the bombings. And he had definitely written about the labor struggle at the La Grenade Shoe Factory. He'd called for direct action against the company. He even spoke in support of strikers on Radio Canada once. At some point, Valier had even been arrested while picketing at La Grenade. There's a dramatic picture of him being taken down very unwillingly by three cops. I still find it a little puzzling that they chose to focus on the La Grenade strike. It was, after all, a francophone family business. But Valliere saw the opportunity for separatists to make common cause with workers by supporting them in their real-life struggles. In any event, there was plenty to suggest that the situation at La Grenade was a bit of an obsession for Valliere. Whether that made him guilty of a crime was another question. But the prosecution set out to show that in his own words and ideas, there was enough evidence to find Valliere criminally responsible for the death of Thérèse Morin. In court, Valliere found himself a stage to voice and defend his political beliefs. By choosing to submit FLQ literature as evidence, the prosecution unwittingly amplified his revolutionary message and, more importantly, politicized the trial. By November, a legal support group had formed, made up of Montreal intellectuals and artists, and they stuck by Valliere through his first trial. Remember Robert Comeau, that young separatist who was following Charles de Gaulle around? Well, by now he was a 22-year-old history professor at a Montreal college. Et euh, les étudiants aimaient beaucoup la politique et tout ça. Et il y avait un climat qui a pu aujourd'hui. Et euh, moi, And he saw Valliere's trial as a chance to show his students history history that was unfolding before their eyes. Quand il y a eu le procès, j'ai dit, on va aller au palais de justice. Et c'était incroyable parce que c'était révoltant de voir ça. Les gens It was a revolting spectacle, but his students loved it, he says. He recalls a judge fiddling with elastics and pretending to sleep while Valliere made his case. Pure provocation, says Camo, showing the judge's contempt for the FLQ message. And to be sure, it was no ordinary day in court. Como says actors and artists would show up, yelling and making speeches, until the judge would order them out. And when he wasn't bogging down the trial with procedural delays, he was haranguing the court with his political views. 
And as if there weren't enough controversy swirling around the trial, right in the middle of it, Pierre Valliere's book hit the shelves. Valliere asked the court if he could be excused to attend the book launch. The court demurred. In the end, it took the jury just a few hours to arrive at a verdict. Pierre Valliere was found guilty of manslaughter in the bombing death of Therese Morin. His supporters decried what they saw as a travesty of justice. It's impossible not to feel a co-responsibility with Valliere Gango. I guess they are uh, as a symbol of the, um, the fight for freedom uh, in Quebec. Valliere was sentenced to life in prison. Police and prosecutors once again believed they had finally extinguished the FLQ. But the trial and conviction had the opposite effect. The FLQ was invigorated, and now people were willing to stand up and show their support for the group in public. There were benefit concerts around the province. Packed houses heard poets, musicians, and artists. They spoke and sang their undying support for Quebec independence and for the men they saw as the heroes of the movement. Speak white. Il est si beau de vous entendre parler de Paradise Lost. Poet Michelle Lalonde was inspired by Valliere's book and wrote her most famous poem for the occasion. Speak White is about the subjugation of colonized people generally, and the Québécois in particular. The title refers to a nasty slur used by Anglo-Quebecers who wanted to be spoken to in English. The origins of the phrase are unclear, but somehow it seems anti-black racism and language prejudice were conflated into one ugly put-down. We spoke to several people who remember being told to speak white in 60s Montreal. It's probably crossed your mind that it was a stretch to compare the lot of French Canadians to that of black Americans. But Valliere and Gagnon did receive a telegram of solidarity in French from an American civil rights leader, Stokely Carmichael. Courage, nos frères. We support you in your trial. Your experiences are no different from those of true patriots everywhere and at any time who resist against tyranny. We are confident of your complete vindication and in the end, they were vindicated, at least by the courts. There were appeals and further charges to come for Pierre Valliere as well. But in 1973, his manslaughter conviction was overturned and he was free. Valliere eventually grew disenchanted with the movement that he had helped create. The FLQ became, in his words, a terrorist menace. But he remained an activist for the rest of his life, for gay rights, for First Nations self-governance, for mental health. He died of a heart attack in December 1998. He was just 60 years old. Years after it was first published, Valliere told Radio-Canada that he was surprised by the success of his book. Clearly, he tapped into something. Valliere's trial would have a lasting effect on many Quebecers, including the students that Robert Comeau had brought to court. In September of 69, one of those students came to see Comeau in his office. He wanted to join the FLQ. 
He was asking for Como's help. Como told that student that he would be honored to connect him with the terrorist group. Como's own involvement with the FLQ was minimal at first, giving a bit of money, lending his car, those sorts of things. But gradually, he'd become more and more involved. He was moved by Valliere's descriptions of the Québécois plight and his revolutionary call to action for all who were oppressed. Our battles, wrote Valliere, the battles of the Québécois, the French-speaking people of America, the white N-words, interest, the other oppressed people as their battles interest us and concern us directly. We are all interdependent and responsible for each other. Valliere wanted to cultivate that interdependence, and to some extent he succeeded. Which is how you end up with people like Stokely Carmichael, an honorary prime minister of the Black Panthers, sending notes of solidarity to Quebec separatists, and then actually turning up in Montreal, where he'd meet with another leader of the FLQ. That was a very, very hot meeting. Stokely made this remark. He said, this guy is either a fucking spy or he is the next fucking John Brown of North America. (laughs) That meeting plus an invitation from Fidel Castro and a plot to blow up the Statue of Liberty. It's all next on Recall, How to Start a Revolution. The series is produced by Jessica Lindsay, Francis Plourd, and me, Jeff Turner. Our story editor is Chris Oak. Mixing by Graham McDonald. Our digital producer is Emily Cannell. R.F. Narani is the executive producer of CBC Podcasts, and the senior producer is Tanya Springer. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.